right, welcome back to the Movie Battle Podcast. This week you've got myself and Brennan and the movies, as uh, Vin Diesel might say. So we'll go ahead and and jump into the big one. Uh, so uh, pop open your Coronas, grab a lime, uh, sit in your car, uh, do the this the shift. Um, I'm not really a car guy, so I don't know how that works. But uh, F9. Uh, so this is the the 10th fast movie, if you count Hobbs and Shaw. Uh, but this is uh, the ninth in the in the main saga. It's it's really weird because so much of this franchise's anthology, it feels weird to call this the ninth because I mean Vin Diesel's not in two or three. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is uh this is F nine the Fast Saga. Uh, it looks like as far as marketing goes, they've really dropped the Fast Saga part of it. Um, because I've only seen this referred to as F9, just like even by their official counts and whatnot, um, within the past couple of weeks. I think that's a smart idea because the Fast Saga is an incredibly dumb title. Uh so so F9 is what I'm going with. Um, but it did open up um at the upper end of estimates. So it opened up to a and and coming out of the pandemic, a pretty groundbreaking uh 70 million domestic. Um that's in a pretty big theater count. Um looking at a little bit over 4,000 theaters, um, which is getting pretty much back to normal um, theatrical runs in terms of locations. Um, and, and pulled in 70 million, which is just just damn impressive um, coming out of the pandemic. And as we've seen, nothing uh, really succeed kind of to this level in a long time. Uh, it's nice. Yeah, for sure. I think... A lot of people were kind of getting nervous as the day was coming. I think a long time ago, people were confident in saying this thing should make 60 to 70. And then kind of around a week ago, uh, people kind of in the industry were starting to sound the alarm saying, no, this thing could drop to like low 50s. This thing could open up like around 50 to 55. And then it, it had great previews. Previews better. Uh, Thursday previews better than Hobbs and Shaw's, which for me, that's a signal that, okay, Hobbs and Shaw, obviously it's not a part of the Fast and Furious franchise, but it came out pre-COVID. And if you're going to beat that movie's previews, I just think it, it you're off to off to the races, no pun intended. But uh, $70 million, I think they should be happy about this in kind of a post-COVID era that we're in. So it beats A Quiet Place 2's opening weekend record, and it beats it by quite a bit as well. And while it is well down from uh, Fast 8, which opened up to, I think, 98 or 97 million, considering everything, I think it's not bad. And also the franchise is on a downward trend already. Like, it's it peaked with 7, and you're seeing it now start to go down. So no matter what, this movie is probably not going to make as much as the, the, the last one. Um, but just kind of given everything, this is a pretty good result. $70 million, it passes estimates, which were... 60 to 65 kind of shooting it for around there but yeah that's a really strong opening for them and i wonder too since it is exclusively theaters only um kind of like a quiet place too if this movie will have good legs usually the fast movies don't have great legs uh the seventh one did but usually the rest of them and fast five did but usually the rest of them kind of open up big and really fall off quick um I, I wonder if this movie will have some legs just considering it is exclusively in theaters um, just like as we're seeing a quiet place too, is having just incredible legs and nearly pacing how the first one did. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested to see, to see that. Yeah, I could see it having a really strong second week 
just as we go into the holiday weekend. Um, and as you know, I mean, it has the, the forever purge comes out, so it doesn't really have a lot of direct competition. Um, but I think the week after that we hit black widow, um, which is going to touch a lot of the same box office, uh, nerves. Um, I guess you could call them. Um, so, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch, especially cause black widow is going to be something that's in theaters and streaming. Um, so, so even if people aren't going to see black widow in theaters, they might just want to stay home anyways. Um, but it's a good sign. It's nice to see something succeed. Um, it's already off to a little over 400 million worldwide. Um, cause it has been playing the international circuit a little bit. And, uh, you know, this is, so this was not quite the first movie, I think, uh, but it was in that first wave of movies last year, um, that was delayed. And it was the first one to jump a full year ahead in its release date. Um, so the, <laughs> this movie's actually had five release dates. Um, because originally it was supposed to be in the Hobbs and Shaw window, uh, but the, the infamous uh, The Rock Vin Diesel feud kind of broke, and and they had to restructure some stuff. So Hobbs and Shaw moved up. Um, this fast movie moved back a little bit, and so then it it had kind of its official release date um, last March, and about two weeks before release was when uh, the world kind of met COVID. Um, and so it, it jumped back a full year and didn't quite keep that release date moved back a little bit. Um, but it is here now and it's off to a pretty good start, uh, financially. Yeah, it is for sure. And as you said, over 400 million worldwide already, it'll probably pass five and six. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious because as you said, next weekend, it's really, it really doesn't have too much competition. I think you got boss baby two, uh, and the forever purge, which, might not be fully eating into the audience that wants to go see F9. <laughs> so I'm sure you're right. It's probably going to have a strong second week as well. And that kind of sets it up to just have a really good domestic run. I mean, Black Widow is probably going to flush it out, but it'll have a really strong kind of two-week window to make some bucks. I'm interested though, because people are buying uh, these $30 Disney Plus uh, premium uh, things for their films. Now, the numbers of people are much lower than who's going to the movies to see it, I think. If you compare Corella numbers, you, you'll see that. But obviously, Disney's getting some good, uh, getting some good cash there. I wonder how many people for Black Widow will do that, and if it will be enough to keep F nine at the top of uh, opening weekends post kind of COVID. Um, Black Widow, in my opinion, will do better than this. I think just the the Marvel brand has just been so so successful. Doesn't really matter what they do; it turns into a hit. Um, and even their their more obscure movies, like let's say Doctor Strange or Ant Man, um, even Guardians of the Galaxy to an extent when it first came out, those films opened up pretty high, like higher than F Nine did. So I, I'd presume Black Widow has that potential, but with the Disney Plus option as well, obviously more people are going to go to the theaters. But will it be enough to to get it over F 9s number? I'm not sure. Um, but we'll see. And hopefully by then we'll see even more theaters open. As you said, this movie's in over 4,000. That's kind of really getting back to normal figures. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Um, and I don't want to dive into spoilers too much, uh, but I did get a chance to check out the movie and, uh, I'm kind of on a, on a fast high right now. Uh, so I watched, I watched all of the, the fast movies, um, as, as you did as well. Um, in preparation for this, and this was my second time watching them, and I enjoyed them a lot more. Like, just watching them again, um, kind of knowing what I was getting into, I was like, damn, that was really dumb, but it was a lot of fun. 
Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And uh, F9 just didn't hit me the same way. Um, I think it it's like all the all of the worst parts of Fate of the Furious uh, just kind of doubled <laughs> and extended. Um, you know, there, there are a couple fun action sequences, um, but it's just kind of the the worst of what the the franchise has to offer and a lot of like really obscure MacGuffins that everyone's after like these two little orb things that somehow destroy all the all the world uh it's pretty vague on that um and there's a there's a scene early on in the movie um that i i think kind of encapsulates where the franchise is at and it's this conversation uh between tej and roman uh, so Ludacris and uh, Tyrese Gibson's characters uh, where they're basically busting the fourth wall and just like asking the audience not to think about anything <laughs> like just accept it. We're pretty much immortal. Like <laughs> we're going to do some crazy shit. It's not going to make sense. Uh, just just hang on for the ride. And I, like I feel that, like <laughs> it's like that tenant line pretty much. <laughs> it's it's almost exactly like that. Yeah. Um, so I just. I can't call this a good movie. It, it has its moments, but uh, characters are just kind of in and out. Uh, you could. It, it feels very much like a clip show of the Fast franchise so far, where they're like, hey, remember this guy? And then they'll be on screen for like three minutes, and then you don't see him again, and they'll just like pop up in an action scene. You're like, oh, I forgot they were in this movie. Um, yeah. Odd. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, this franchise is coming to a close, right? The, the spinoffs could continue, but we do know that there will be a part one, part two for for the tenth installment into the saga, right? So it's it's coming to a close and probably it's coming to a close at the right time, I'd say. Yeah. I know there's a lot of people that were like, Oh, you should have ended it in twenty fifteen. Um, and I can kind of see that. But I think, you know, we think of Fast or Furious Seven as kind of the the emotional end to these movies, and I think that's partially true. But these movies in the form they're in now also didn't really exist until the fifth one, until Fast Five. Um, so I, I definitely could see why they're like, you know what, I think we can get something out of it going forward. Um, and I had a lot of fun with Hobbs and Shaw. Um, as rough as uh, Fate of the Furious is, I think that one still had a lot of fun energy to it and just kind of excitement seeing, you know, where do, where do they take this um, now, that, now that Paul Walker, who was, I mean, kind of the main character, up until that point was gone um but yeah it, it definitely needs needs an end needs to be going somewhere um and i think i think this one kind of aligns it on that trajectory um which i, I think is part of my gripe with this one is a lot of this movie is just shuffling everybody around so that they're ready for f for uh fast 10 or fast. part one and part two volume one <laughs> and volume two the the book of fast part one and two <laughs> um but yeah, it, it definitely needs to wrap up because uh, it's 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 going on a little too yeah. long. Yeah, <laughs> um, I love the press tour for this movie. Like I've loved seeing everything come out about it. I've loved seeing Vin Diesel uh, talk about how he needs or how it was tough love towards Dwayne Johnson. That's what started <laughs> the feud. He needed to bring out the better acting in him. <laughs> uh, Vin Diesel saying uh, he wants he's down for the Fast and Furious musical. There have been so many great things to come out of this press tour. It's uh, it's it's one for the books. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, that is that is F nine. 
um, going pretty strong. Uh, we'll we'll kind of see where it's at once uh, once Black Widow drops in. Uh, but then we'll we'll touch on another recent release, um, which was Disney Pixar's Luca. Um, so this was opposite of Fast Nine was a a Disney Plus exclusive. Um, if you look on Disney Plus, it's being marketed as a Disney Plus original, uh, which I think is kind of odd because it it wasn't really made for that. And Pixar has been uh, pretty vocal about wanting the the theatrical release. Uh, but this did debut last week. Um, apparently that, that model has been working for Pixar. They did it with soul, um, on Christmas day onward dropped, um, just a few weeks after it's theatrical release because it, you know, it did release, um, the week leading into all the theaters shutting down. Um, so I guess it must be working for him. Uh, but Luca is out. Um, what were your thoughts on it? I dug the movie personally. I thought it was great. Um, scaled back Pixar movie, right? There's no end of the world. Uh, fights going on. There's no big, big boss. That's kind of you got to take him down at the end. There's no the existentialism, like so, like the like the scope that Soul is on, isn't quite there. But that doesn't detract from this movie's uh, brilliance at all, in my opinion. I think it's a beautiful film, and it's certainly one I'd revisit. It's just kind of a nice, chill, vibey, uh, ninety minutes for me. Like it, it, it really was, and. Uh, I, I, I really did dig it. I think from the score to the, to the way the animation was done, because I do feel it was a little bit unique from usual Pixar style, um, just to the characters as well. There, it's, it's just a movie that, um, and I said this before it touches, I think it's, it's, it's a lot more relatable than most Pixar movies. In my opinion, I think when you look at, uh, just, you got the main character Luca there when he's going through kind of uh, at the beginning of the film starting now to leave the water and come to uh, kind of come to land and, and turn into his human form so to speak and he's kind of nervous about it he doesn't know if he likes it and there's just a lot of conflict within him but I think that's some of the most relatable stuff Pixar has ever done personally like that you have a lot of deep stuff throughout a lot of Pixar's films there's a lot of heart-wrenching stuff they try to pull out the tears but I think this movie strikes a really relatable tone personally yeah i completely agree um i I think first of all this movie is just really pleasant um like it's just very grounded um it's just these two boys um for the most part just exploring this little um italian countryside um and you're you're just you know there's a lot of the the things that i love about pixar is you know normally there's some deeper social commentary going on there um and this movie doesn't really have that but as a result of that, um, it just feels so much more emotionally grounded because um, you're you're you know, you're not really commenting on anything other than, you know, how these two boys are feeling. Um, and I agree with the animation. Um, I think it was really unique. They did a good job of making it feel very cartoony, but very detailed um, and just very animated. Um, and all, all the character designs really pop. Um, despite the fact that most of the characters are just regular humans. Um, and, and I think the world is vibrant. The water effects are terrific. Um, like Luca is, it's just a good time. Um, it's, it's very pleasant. It's this nice little exploration of the village. Um, it's very low stakes. Uh, basically the boys uh, go to the town and they want to win a triathlon. Um, <laughs> and that's, uh, that, that's, that's their end goal. Uh, plot wise, which I, I think was really refreshing just to have, you know, there's kind of like you said, there's no fate of the world on the line. No one's going to die. 
nothing nothing really bad is going to happen. Um, they just won't get a Vespa out of it. Uh, but it's I really appreciated how down to earth this was. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you also got to love that character design of the. Uh, I guess it's a trend now. Uh, you know the little girl. I forget her name. Uh, was it Julia? Was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, her father. It's that cloudy with a chance meatball style dad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with those Listen, eyebrows. If it, <laughs> if it works, you can't change it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Maya Rudolph uh, just cementing her place as the Disney mom. Yeah, uh, no kidding. And actually, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen uh, was in this movie as well. As kind yeah, of a deep sea uncle. Oh, okay. All right. And he's like if the the blind fish with the light on its head from Finding Nemo was had a human body underneath him. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, apparently um, he, he ad-libbed most of his lines, uh, which doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me. Yeah, he, uh, that's, that's interesting because I, I was, I was wondering who he played. I just forgot to look it up because it was reported like a week before the movie came out that he was cast. I don't know if you saw that, but that, that report was literally like maybe a week to 10 days before the movie came out. And I was like, Dude, isn't this thing dropping in a week? Like, <laughs> you're going to... I mean, maybe they recorded stuff before and the article kind of worded it wrong, but they were talking about just... He was cast in Luca, like, a week out. That was crazy. But yeah, okay, smaller role. Um, but yeah, I dug this thing for sure. The score is also really nice. Uh, it is. And I love the uh, dream sequence scenes, especially the rings of uh, Saturn there. Yeah. Yeah, there's some really beautiful just exploration of space um and that and just the the exploration of this countryside and under the water um it's just a beautiful movie mm-hmm. um and what's pixar got next we got turning red and yeah. they're they've said they're going back to theaters for that one yeah so turning red is supposed to be their return to theaters and uh the the plot of that movie really intrigues me so basically it's this girl that is obsessed with some kind of, I think it's a boy band. Um, and anytime she gets excited, she turns into a giant red panda. Uh, so it's like the Hulk, but cuddly. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> I saw the, I think they released a, a concept art, I believe. Uh, it looks pretty cool. And that's slated for, I think, March of next year. Yeah. Um, and it is directed by uh, Domi Shi, who did Bao. Uh, the short that was before The Incredibles 2 a couple years yeah. ago. Arguably the most watched short in the history of mankind. Uh, definitely one of the the most surprising. Um, I, I still have not recovered from uh, the lady just eating her son just in one bite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, no, for sure. Um, yeah, that's a, that, that's great that she's now kind of leaping into leaping into getting a, a first feature. Um and you know what, Pixar, I think one thing that we have to acknowledge here and, and be kind of happy about is four uh, straight original Pixar films, like four straight that are not spinoffs, uh, prequels, sequels, reunion type movies. Like this is, uh, this, this is pretty cool. So we had, we had Onward, we had Soul, we had now Luca, and then we have Turning Red. So I think that's pretty neat. We have four in a row before we get to uh, Lightyear, <laughs> the first little spinoff there. Yeah, and I think we're really starting to witness um, kind of the next generation of Pixar um, with these directors that have been coming up. So uh, Pete Docter, 
um, said he was done with Seoul. Um, Andrew Stanton, uh, obviously John Lasseter, though for a little bit different reasons, um, have all kind of uh, parted with Pixar. Um, uh, most of them uh, pretty amicably. Um, and just to move on to other things. And so we're, we're seeing um, these new, this newer generation, um, like with, uh, with Domi Shi uh, coming up with Turning Red. Um, and, and even with the director of Luca um, did the, the La Luna short. So we're kind of seeing that, that next wave kind of find their place and, and find their ideas, um, give Pixar kind of the, the breath of fresh air it needs. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I love to see it. Um, and I was thinking about, because I think Pixar's kind of exhausted their sequels that would take over the theaters for a month type of movies. Like I I'm thinking about it. I just don't see them having any more of those in the tank. I think we're going to get an Incredibles three probably within the next five to 10 years. I, I think, uh, I know there's probably been no report on that, but I could definitely see that happening. Um, just because of just how immensely successful that last one was, but I, I don't really think there are any other older Pixar movies. We'll see it kind of sequelified. Like we're not going to see, an up two. We're not going to see a <laughs> Wally two, and we're not going to see things like that. I, I and they really did kind of turn them out quick, starting yeah. with I think Monsters U and kind of running all the way to Toy Story four. They've really just in a short sp- span of time turned out a ton of movies and made a ton of money. And I just don't think we'll see that. I think we'll see a lot more original Pixar movies over the next several years. I mean, I think Lightyear is probably going to be the first kind of test mm-hmm. for them to see if they can make a lot of money off a spinoff. Yeah, um, and I I think the other uh, interesting thing about Luca is it's one of the few Pixar movies um, that does not have a John Ratzenberger cameo. Hmm. Um, and you know he's he's getting kind of old, but it it just feels weird. Yeah, John Ratzenberger, the legend. I always see him in my uh, on my letterbox actors that I've watched a lot of, and I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah so he's uh actually i believe this is the first one uh that he's not in because he's been in everything on through soul hmm. um so it's 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 kind of sad you know it's like when uh you know the first marvel movie without stan lee you know exactly yeah um but yeah that is uh <laughs> to end on a depressing note um that is luca and it is on Disney Plus. It's a really good movie. Um, like you said, I definitely see myself uh, revisiting this in the future because it was a really good time. Um, Certainly. So to uh, switch thematic gears quite a bit, um, we'll go ahead and jump into the uh, the Babel Movie Club. And uh, this week's pick uh, was your your rotation, um, and you picked Candyman, the 1992 version, not the uh, unreleased version. Uh, so you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I picked uh, Bernard Rose's, uh, Candyman from 1992 starring Tony Todd, uh, Virginia Madsen as well. This was a movie I had never seen before. Um, heard a little bit about it, but really had never seen, seen it before. Um, and I really just chose it due to the fact that I'm really excited for Nita Costa's Candyman coming in August. I think that's a movie that has a chance to, like kind of take over the stratosphere and kind of take over the conversation. So I'm 
looking forward to that big time. So I wanted to get acquainted with this uh, uh, subject and just kind of experience what kind of started this film franchise because there were two sequels after this one as well. Um, I I really did enjoy this movie. We can get into the plot a little bit if you like, but I'm sure a decent amount of people know the Candyman story. Um, yeah, it came out in 1992. I think it's a movie that I knew at the time, I was kind of doing a little bit of research here, that it was a little bit risky. Apparently the director had to do a lot of research for this film. He was very nervous about it. Um, and it, it premiered at TIFF in 1992. So that's kind of an iconic TIFF uh, premiere film. And at the time when it came out, I mean, critics did, for the most part, uh, it was received pretty well, but audiences were kind of split on the film. And since then it has, I'd say, uh, I'd say kind of probably been more rejuvenated as the years have gone on. I think there's been some revisionist history about this film uh, that has kind of helped uh, raise its status in the horror realm. I, I did dig it though. I really liked it. And Philip Glass's score as well. I can't lie. After I watched it last night, I put that on. I may have fallen asleep to that last night. <laughs> yeah. Um, Candyman. Uh, so I, I also watched this for the first time um, in preparation for the release of the new Candyman. Uh, but that was last year <laughs> when I did the first time because uh, Candyman was only only supposed to be a few months away at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's, it's nice to watch it again in preparation. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a really solid horror movie, um, that I think really stands out from kind of where the genre was at that time. Um, so I, I think the horror genre kind of, as we know, it is really a product of the seventies and eighties. So you have Halloween and you have Nightmare on Elm Street and, um, uh, Chucky, uh, I forget what the official, uh, Child's Play is the uh, franchise name. Uh, for Chucky, but you have a lot of these like really slasher movies that aside from the original movies, uh, were just, you know, knife porn, um, basically. Mm -hmm. And, and this was kind of a, a lull in the genre and Candyman came, um, just kind of right before scream really reinvigorated it. And then, you know, a, a slew of more Halloween sequels and, <laughs> and everything. And it kind of died again. Um, but I, I think it packs, much more commentary than audiences really expected at the time. So, um, I mean, this movie deals a lot with gentrification and, um, just with, um, kind of alternative history, kind of like you said, how there's been some, some rewriting of history, um, uh, you know, just about the love for this movie over time. That's, that's one of the, the bigger, uh, subjects it deals with, um, talking about it. And I, I think, uh, it, thematically it didn't, didn't completely land for me. Um, but I think there's a lot there to dissect. Um, so I think that's probably why, you know, it didn't just immediately explode, um, back then, but I think that's why it has such a great legacy now. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you can't talk about this movie without talking about the Candyman himself, Tony Todd. Um, so probably what, what this movie's most known for is the scene with the bees. Uh, cause you can't go wrong with bees. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, so there's a, there's a, like a, a bee transfer cause he, he kisses her with bees in his mouth. Uh, but Tony Todd, um, 
was paid a little over a thousand dollars for each beasting and ended up walking away with an extra 23 grand, uh, which is just kind of cool. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Uh, I've probably tried to bargain a little bit more, but I mean, maybe 1992, that was a pretty good, pretty good bargain. Inflation's been pretty wild over the last few decades, but, um, yeah, this is a movie that certainly, as you said, it isn't just knife porn, as you said, from kind of the, how some of that 70s, 80s kind of horror became as it evolved. Um, but yeah, this movie is certainly a movie that has a lot more on its mind. It's a, it's kind of one of the first kind of uh, social horrors of its, of, its, of its kind. And I think it kind of laid a little bit of a framework for movies today, in a way. I think today we're seeing a lot more social horror uh, type films come out. I mean, horror's always been, there's always been, at least in, in the non-pure knife porn movies, there's always been some <laughs> sort of social elements that are being explored. But this one certainly kind of changed the game with, as you said, gentrification, um, race is, is a big topic in this film, and just kind of inner city issues and social classes. And I, I just think it was it's it's a neat way to explore that topic, and I'm just so excited for Nita Costa's Candyman this August. I think it's gonna be gonna be something special. The trailer looks phenomenal, and this was a great way to kind of prepare for that. I did like it. I did like it quite a bit, and I love uh, Tony Todd's. I love the voice. I love the synth they put over him, uh, <laughs> his Candyman voice in this. Yeah, and it'll be interesting uh, because the new Candyman is. Uh, basically like a direct sequel to this movie. Um, so Yahya Abdul-Mateen's character is the baby um, from kind of the, the final act of this movie. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how directly does it tie in? Um, is this something like, you know, the recent Halloween where it's going to be like, yeah, we're just going to pretend we're picking up right where we left off. Or is this going to be like a quasi-remake kind of thing? Um, so, so I'm definitely excited um, to see Candyman. Uh, here in a little over two months. Actually, two months exactly from today. Yeah, August 27, right? Yeah. I think uh, it's got a chance to be one of the movies that really this year breaks out kind of as a movie that is huge within not only uh, kind of film Twitter circles, but also just the general populace as well. Yeah, and I it's got a really strong cast um, going into it. So I, I think the highlight for me is going to be Yaya Abdul-Mateen. Um, who's just kind of been on a, a really hot streak lately. Um, you know, he's, of course he's got Aquaman from a few years ago, uh, but he did Watchmen two years ago. Now, um, he did us, uh, he, he's in the matrix, uh, quasi reboot sequel coming up, uh, Tiona Paris from WandaVision. Um, and then you've also got Coleman Domingo who's in Zola, um, and Tony Todd is coming back. Um, so you just have a, a big group of contending actors, um, in a horror movie, which normally means you're doing something right. Yeah, no, no kidding. I'm I'm pretty hyped for it. I thought it was a solid pick this week. I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to the next one. So, uh, yeah, that is that is Candyman, uh, not not the 2021 version, but the 1992 version. <laughs> um, so that is also this week's episode of the Movie Babble podcast. Um, we'll be we'll be back. I'm um, talking about more movies, of course. We got to get some Boss Baby takes in. Uh, a little disappointed Tobey Maguire's not returning for this one, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's lucky uh, to be, even be in the last one. I mean, what? He never acts anymore. <laughs> we miss you, Toby. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that is this week's episode. Remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com. Thank you.